This week's episode of Pro Se is sponsored by Docket. Is your legal department frustrated by manual, fragmented processes? Docket can help. Docket is the legal department's command center for managing workflow and simplifying manual processes so teams can focus on the substantive work that actually matters. Visit getdocket.co today to learn more. Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello, and happy to be back. Good to have you back, Bill, and Alex Lawson. Hi, guys. How's everybody doing? Doing great. I, I thought you guys did a terrific job on the uh, the episode last week. Very informative. We're going to... I know we have a, um, a follow-up story to some of the qualified immunity that you guys talked about uh, last week. Um Things are starting to open up back back in New York here. Yeah, um, we're, we're starting to crawl out of it. I think we're officially in phase one. I know a lot of different cities are interpreting phases differently, but this is construction as I understand it. Yeah. Uh, and some other things like that. I was talking to Steve yesterday and I was like, when, whenever we're allowed to go back in the office, the Law 360 office, and we still don't know when that's going to be, we need to have, a, I mean, we need to have a discussion about when we're actually going to go back and record stuff. Because that is literally the smallest room in the it office. Is. It's yeah. the and, smallest and room. I, and I don't know when we're going to like... I mean, I've, well, I, I've gotten used to doing this at home. It's like totally fine, but... I remember right when things were ramping up and getting scary in March, uh, we you know we had an episode that we were going to record on a, a Thursday. And yeah. it just, you know, the news kept coming in and coming in and coming in. And by that Thursday, all of us were like, we cannot get into a tiny room and basically <laughs> speak into each other's mouths from across a tiny table. I, mean, I think I made a joke about it in that first show with Vin. I was like, yeah, you know, you know, now that I think about it, this uh, studio is pretty small and don't I feel right. dumb. But uh, I mean, I think just for purposes of the listeners, if they've never seen us, a picture of us in the room or whatever, you couldn't put even two people in that room and have them socially distance at six feet no. apart. It's very tight. No, it is yeah. smaller than six feet, but, um, but yeah, so but we're enjoying uh, doing it as we are. Yeah. We, we are. are. It's, it's worked out pretty well. I'd like to think. Um, and so well, in fact, that today's an all host show, just the three of us talking <laughs> through it. the big news. Yeah. So, um, the first thing we were going to hit today is, um, we're staying on the, in the COVID-19 world. Um, and, but we, I don't, I don't think we've talked before about, um, all the issues, uh, surrounding the, the chase for vaccines. Um, so, uh, you know, scientists and companies and test subjects all around the world are working sort of furiously, um, to develop a, a vaccine racing to hopefully get one by, you know, later this year, early next year. Um, but there's one U.S. drug maker that's now accusing another company of holding that process, quote, hostage. Um, and they've gone to court to try to remedy the situation. Yeah, like you say, there's a lot of eyeballs. Um, everyone is obviously eager to see a vaccine uh, sooner rather than later. And there's obviously no shortage of when when there's a competition to do stuff like that. There's no shortage of intrigue that goes along with it. So what are we what what is this company? What are they making? It's a company called Innovio Pharmaceuticals. They're a Pennsylvania-based um, biotech firm. They're already conducting stage one human trials after they released a study in May showing that they're they're developing a DNA-based vaccine. I know that there's many different types of ways you can develop a vaccine, mm-hmm. um, 
but they're developing one based on uh, DNA that had shown promise in, in mice. So they're already on to stage one, which is where you give the vaccine to a small group of people, see how it works. Stage two is more like a few hundred people. And then three is thousands of people. And that's right before uh, a vaccine is approved. Um, yeah. Inovio isn't one of the the five companies that were tapped as part of the federal government's, uh, it's quote, warp speed development program that, that are getting extra funding and sort of being uh, shepherded through the the regulatory process to try to really, you know, the the government is essentially betting on those vaccines. But um, mm-hmm. it's just, it's one of just seven teams that are at stage one out of, I think it's like 120 different projects. Um, most of which are still in you know the preclinical phase. Um, and as I mentioned in the in the intro, uh, you know, they're hoping that the hope right now is is that one of these is ready, you know, by early next year. Vaccines are notoriously tough. You know, I saw somewhere that it's, you know, it's one of the toughest things that we can do in modern science. And, yep. you know, the, the current record is like no fewer than four years. So we will see. But the hope is that one of these projects, perhaps Inovios, perhaps one of the warp speed ones is going to be ready by early next year. So it's really interesting to hear about uh, these vaccines and and how some of them are progressing, but uh, we're obviously the legal show, so there's there's an entanglement here. What what's going on? What's Inovio upset about? Yeah, so they filed a lawsuit last week in Pennsylvania State Court, claiming that um, another company that the that Inovio used to partner with is effectively preventing this process from this, you know, development process from moving forward with, you know, great harm both to Inovio and as they tell it, the sort of broader world that needs this, this vaccine. Um, The target of the suit is a Texas based company called VGXI. They are what is known as a contract manufacturer. Um, It's a pretty common thing in the pharmaceutical business. They provide certain development and manufacturing services to uh, to pharmaceutical companies, allowing you to sort of, um, you know, outsource certain aspects of drug development, drug manufacturing. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty common thing, you know, that that drug makers will will partner with these contract firms. Um, the the but but what th- this relationship obviously soured, uh, and and Inovio has filed this lawsuit. I thought a good quote to to start us off. This case, pure and simple, is about VGXI wrongfully blocking the path to the development of a COVID-19 vaccine. VGXI is holding the vaccine and World Health hostage, perhaps to squeeze more money from Inovio. So it's 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 pretty pretty strong language here. What um, now you know there's obviously they they have a they're having a what is primarily a financial dispute, but they make clear that you know, this, they, they view the stakes as being a lot higher given that there's um, uh, a pandemic uh, still raging. Um, what are the specific claims, though, that they are making? And like, it's just from a squarely legal standpoint. Yeah, it's, it's you know, if you really want to break it down, it's basically a very, very strongly worded con- breach of contract lawsuit. Um, yeah. They, you know, according to Inovio, VGXI signed... A contract to make uh, to to work with Inovio on this vaccine, but the deal specifically required them to turn over their technology and their processes to Inovio in the event that that VGXI could not make the vaccine themselves. It had a provision that said, if you you know if you can't do this, you have to give us the ability to do it, and we mm-hmm. you know we work together. Um, According to Inovio, VG, VGXI is already at capacity and they're trying to build more capacity, but 
that won't be ready till 2022. So clearly, I you know as I explained before, the time frame here is 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 quick. Is the next six months? It's not years and years down the road. So what yeah. they're saying is because we kind of like to be th- done with this uh, yeah. soon, folks. Yeah. Just uh, yeah. just uh, just just my opinion. Sorry, go ahead. So what VGXI is saying is that 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 provision in their contract has been triggered and you have to hand over this technology to them um, but that VGXI is not doing so. Another quote. VGXI has has no justifiable reason for its misconduct and seems to care nothing about the fact that a vaccine must be developed at warp speed to stem the tide of the, the hugely catastrophic pandemic. It offers no credible legal or factual reason for its gross misconduct while the worldwide death toll continues to mount and the global financial crisis ruins lives everywhere. So it's, you know, you always have to to bring something in court. You do obviously have to find, uh, you know, a harm, an injury. And uh, it's it would be an understatement to say that they are, you know, it, they are they are claiming yeah. the biggest injury that the that the world is being harmed by um, by this process not being allowed to move forward. So it's um, uh, I think it's I, I mean, I think it's interesting from the perspective of we're going to see there's been so much talk of everyone's working together and everyone's trying to get these these yeah. vaccines out and get antiviral medications out and. But we're going to see some disputes over this stuff. The, I was going to say clearly. <clears throat> I was say clearly these 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 companies are not watching any primetime TV because they're not they're they're not seeing the bland corporate we're all in this together ads. This 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 <laughs> this, this this messaging is not reaching them clearly. Right, and I think particularly for you know for the, the Law Three Hundred and Sixty readers out there, it's going to be very interesting to see how yeah, intellectual definitely. property plays into this, how all the regulatory processes play into this. Um, so I think this is one of the, you know, one of the first of what is going to be, um, you know, a lot of litigation over the, the, the treatments and hopefully the cures for this. For our second story today, I want to turn us to talking about whistleblowers, which we don't always discuss on the show, but, um, got a big development this past week. Um, the Securities and Exchange Commission announced that it was awarding nearly $50 million to a single whistleblower. It's the largest ever sum to one person. Uh, in other news, I'm thinking of becoming a whistleblower <laughs> uh, for work. Uh, if, this is, uh, if this is what the going rate is for that now, that's kind of cool. Yeah, I, I mean, this is this is notable just because of this, the sheer size of the sum. Um, right. The agency didn't give a ton of details about this. A lot of things were redacted. Um, but they said that this unnamed whistleblower had given them highly significant information related to a company's misconduct. And that resulted in a large amount of money returned to harmed investors. And that's how they ended up getting such a large portion of these these um, these awards. And just for some context, because I didn't really know this, I don't I don't follow all these whistleblower awards. Too yeah, closely. we don't talk about it a lot, like you say. Um, yeah. So there hasn't been anything too close to this amount awarded to one person. Back in 2018, the agency awarded 39 million, which is still really large, to one individual. And that same year, they did have another 50 million dollar award, but it was split between two whistleblowers. So this one's much bigger. The whole now you're getting fifty ahead, so yeah. The whole way that this process works, I think, is so interesting. But because I, I think people don't really understand this, you know, this whole system of whistleblower awards and all that kind of stuff. So, what, what's the deal here, and how does that, how does this sort of fit into that system? 
Yeah, it is really interesting. Um, so whistleblower awards come from a fund that was actually established by Congress. So they set out how this works. And whistleblowers get a percentage of the money that um, security law violators pay to the SEC in sanctions. So mm-hmm. that percentage is set between 10 and 30%, but only if the money that's brought in is over a million dollars. So it kicks in after a million dollars. That means this case involves at least $500 million in sanctions. So that's why it's oh. shocking that this whistleblower award is yeah. so large. Okay. Yeah. I might be thinking, I might be rethinking my career plans because I don't <laughs> know of any corporate malfeasance to that magnitude. So no, I'm not really tough. sure. It's tough. I'm not trying to get anybody in trouble yet, even though I guess that is in the job description <laughs> of a whistleblower is to get people well, in trouble. Well, I mean, I think, um, of course, when you hear this big figure and then you think about how big the damage award has to be, yeah. you start wondering, like, well, what is this about? Like, what could right. they have blown the whistle on? Um, And like I said before, the whistleblower wasn't actually named by the SEC. A lot of what they released is heavily redacted, but we do know a few things. The whistleblower, uh, the SEC said, laid out clear details of what the agency called, quote, substantial aspects of the scheme and provided a roadmap for the investigation. So to get this big award, they obviously were giving really clear information that led to bringing this enforcement action and recovering these damages. We don't know exactly what law was violated, but one attorney told Law 360 that this highest sanction is um, is likely brought under the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. And if you don't remember what that is, that's the one that prohibits bribing foreign government officials. Oh, that's so, such a it's such a boring take name you to the woodshed for, for those FCPA violations. Sorry, go it's ahead, such Bill. a boring name for for you know if we just called it like they bribed foreign officials like that's yeah you know. <laughs> no it sounds much more serious if you just say it like that. No, yeah. we I mean Bill, you've been covering this stuff long enough to know that if it doesn't have some inscrutable acronym, it's not worth the damn. <laughs> I mean, this is the FCPA we're talking about. So obviously. how put this in context for us? You know how how often do do, do people come forward with this kind of stuff? Because I I can't imagine they have an unlimited fund to give out, you know, $50 million all the time. Well, what I like about this is that Alex was talking about his future career change into whistleblowing, and he's not going to be the only one. Um, <laughs> a, a man named Stephen Pekin, he's the co-director of the SEC's Division of Enforcement, so he deals with this kind of stuff a lot. He recently said that from mid-March to mid-May, the commission received 4,000 whistleblower tips. That's Whoa. a bump up of 35% more than the same time last year. Wow. So this is definitely on an upswing. But I mean, and, I guess I guess that's well, what they want, right? That that you they want do. people they wanna to hear uh, details about any malfeasance because their job is to enforce the securities laws. And so sometimes the best way that they can make those cases and bring enforcement actions is to have that insider information. Um, but I, here's one thing that sort of ties it into COVID that we talk about all the time. A few attorneys that have spoken to Law360 have said that some of that increase may truly be because of the social distancing everyone is doing. Oh. People are not in offices, so oh. they may feel more empowered to pick up the phone and call the SEC because they don't have their boss or their yeah. direct manager right there with them all the time. So if they see something bad, they may feel more emboldened during this period. Once again, today's Pro Se is brought to you by Docket. Is your legal department frustrated every day by manual, fragmented processes? Docket can help. Docket is the legal department's command center for managing workflow and simplifying those manual processes so teams can focus on substantive work that actually matters. Visit getdocket.co today to learn more. 
So next, um, we are returning, uh, as Bill hinted, at the top of the show to the, um, as everyone I'm sure knows, the protests over police brutality in the wake of George Floyd's death at the hands of Minnesota police. They sort of continue to rage through major American cities. We're going to continue to talk about that as as the news deems it. Um, and uh, this week, we saw for the first time a federal appeals court sort of uh, give a hat tip um, to this broader situation um, uh, in an actual opinion as the Fourth Circuit um, actually denied uh, legal immunity for five police officers who killed a man in West Virginia, uh, and they specifically invoked uh, George Floyd's name in the process. So, um, you know, as we said, we, we we did a whole segment on qualified immunity last week, and we're already kind of starting to see some uh, some ripple effects um, of the of the um, the unrest that we've seen over the last couple of weeks. I'm really eager to talk about this follow-up because just last week we talked to Professor Will Bode and he lined up a bunch of examples for us of how courts so rarely um, toss out qualified immunity that most of the time that's the cops are protected by that. This one went the other way. Yeah. Um, and actually, I should credit uh, producer Steve. He noted to me as we were preparing for this, um, the Fourth Circuit has actually been one of the few circuits that has... Um, at, le- at least in the very recent past, I just did some cursory research we both did, um, denied qualified immunity in some recent decisions, including several last year and one earlier this year involving a woman who sued uh, a cop who shot her dog. Um, so it's not like this is like a sea change for them. They've, they, they've thrown out qualified immunity um, uh, at least a few times. But the opinion still um, is, is very noteworthy, which for reasons we'll discuss, uh, it explicitly tethered the case to the broader conversation that we are all having about police brutality. Um, but the case that they were examining, uh, it, it, again, at the Fourth Circuit was brought by the family um, of a man named Wayne Jones, who was a homeless man who was shot 22 times in Martinsburg, West Virginia, by five police officers in 2013 as he lay uh, motionless on the ground. God, um, the facts of these cases are always so yeah, terrible. We, we talked about that with Will last week. I mean, there's no, it, it's, it's, it's always, it's, these are incredibly violent circumstances often. Um, I'll, I'll run you through some of the cliff notes here and then we can get into um, what they actually said. Um, so this, uh, this, this incident again took place in 2013 when police officers confronted Jones for walking on the street instead of on the sidewalk, which, which was against a city ordinance at that time. Um, they exchange words with him. They eventually ask him if he has a weapon. He doesn't really quite give them a clear answer. He's a little bit confused. Uh, they tell him to put his hands on the car. Uh, he asks why. They hit him with a stun gun. More officers arrive on the scene at this point, um, and Jones eventually uh, hits one of them, and he tries to run away. Uh, he's eventually apprehended, and he's basically smothered on the ground by five police officers who have him pinned down. Uh, and then this part's important. They notice then that he has a knife in his hand, um, and it's at this point that they all draw back off of him. Again, all five of them were basically holding him down. They draw back off of him, tell him to drop the knife. He just lays there, motionless, doesn't say anything, doesn't move, and then at some point, they all decide to fire on him. They fire on him 22 times in total, and he's killed. Um the lower court gave these officers qualified immunity. They said that because Jones wasn't secured by the officers at the time, again, they had backed away from him, that they hadn't used excessive force under a clearly established law. And those are the those are the main trigger points for, for earning qualified immunity. Um, but the appeals court this week reversed. They said that um, at the moment that the five officers pinned him down, 
they consider him to be secured at that point, even if he wasn't handcuffed. And they pointed to some case law from the from that time, you know, pre-2013, that says it is clearly established that suspects can be considered secured even if they aren't handcuffed. Um, so their, their, their analysis was kind of summed up as such. They said, if Jones was secured, then police officers could not constitutionally release him, back away from him, and shoot him. To do so violated Jones's constitutional right to be free from deadly force under clearly established law. So that's sort of how they came at the issue. As we were preparing to do this segment, I, you know, I thought back to listening to last week's interview with Professor Bode and a specific thing that he mentioned, which was that the courts don't like to be perceived as responsive to sort of the the immediate cultural or newsworthy you know moments that they want to be yeah. sort of above the fray and that they're ruling on these as broader questions. But but what happened here is that that this court specifically pointed to what is happening right now in the streets as they were ruling on this. Yeah. Um uh, they, yeah, they they made no no mistake about that, really. Now they offered a pretty in depth analysis of the actual of the Jones case before them. It's not like they they, they saw what was going on and used it as a as a, oh, for as sure. a means to to grandstand or anything. They, they 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 walked through the facts of the case, but they seem to be expressing a distaste for police brutality as a whole. And the George Floyd case got a specific shout out. Here was the here was the quote from the from the opinion. Before the ink dried on this opinion, the FBI opened an investigation into yet another death of a black man at the hands of police, this time George Floyd in Minnesota. This has to stop. To award qualified immunity at the summary judgment stage in this case would signal absolute immunity for fear-based use of deadly force, which we cannot accept. So not only did they mention Floyd by name, but the the this has to stop quote is pretty jarring because like you say bill they're clearly when when they're saying this they're not just talking about the jones case that case is is done they are talking about going forward this type of and that's how i read it anyway and it Um, it, and it sort of you know and they and they hit on what i think is sort of the consensus criticism of of qualified immunity that, that that the qualified is is increasingly not there that it's that's this, yeah. this broader Definitely. immunity than perhaps the court intended when it created it back in the 1980s yeah um the 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 other thing that that, that stuck out is that the court with regard back to specifically the jones case is that they put the onus on the cops for escalating what began as a stop over a guy walking on a street instead of a sidewalk and ended up with somebody dead um, so it was like just because Jones resisted and he was discovered to have a small knife, they the court says that does not give the police uh, that they, they use the phrase carte blanche to use deadly force. Um, they were referring to, to the uh, some of the officer, the, the, the police videos. There was, a, there was a, a, a dash cam video that recorded part of the incident. And they said, what we see is a scared man who is confused about what he did wrong and an officer that does nothing to alleviate that man's fears. That is the broader context in which five officers took Jones's life. So they are casting a glance toward the, you know, the role of police officers. There's a lot of talk about these days about you know, protect and serve. And, you know, that that right. doesn't always, you know, you know, fall under the bucket of. Um, killing unarmed people. So, um, like we say, uh, it's just one court, um, and it's a court that uh, that again had cast a skeptical eye towards qualified immunity before. But I think it speaks to uh, the power of the moment and uh, the degree to which it's uh, reverberating through the legal system.
like to end our show with something offbeat. And guys, I'm just going to read the headline of the one I want to talk about today because pretty much says it all. Ex-judge suspended for a preposterous suit over lost pants. <laughs> I'm hooked. Uh, <laughs> right? It's uh, great, could, right? Could, could we not get Stephen A. Smith to uh, guest on the show here? Because this, this is preposterous. See, lost to me, pants. this is preposterous. Yeah, lost <laughs> pants, things of that nature. Uh, uh, yeah, it is preposterous, and it just gets crazier as I will tell you the tale. So let's start with the basics. Um, Lay it down. The District of Columbia Court of Appeals suspended the law license of a former administrative law judge who claimed in a lawsuit that his dry cleaner owed him $67 million for losing his pants. This guy's <laughs> name is uh, Roy Pearson Jr. He's suspended for 90 days um, for what the court basically said was years and years of frivolous litigation that led to the preposterous damages demands. Did now, I say I was going to become a whistleblower? I'm going to become a rethink lost it. pants. I, I, I'm going to become a lost pants litigator. That's what's going to happen. Oh, here. I thought you were going to say you were going to begin, you know, <laughs> selling $67 million pairs of pants. Oh, uh, that's a good call. Too. Also good. Yeah. Great. Yeah. You pants and Kanye West. Right. Yes. Um, yeah. So I'll, uh, this seems so yeah, let's, silly let's to even explain the facts of this, but here sure. we go. Pearson took some pants to his dry cleaner for sure. alteration. This was all the way back in 2005. Pants got lost. He files a lawsuit. He initially demanded $15,000 for emotional distress, $15,000 in punitive damages from each of three defendants who uh, owned this dry cleaners. So it's like so, 90 grand. It's like 30 grand per three defendants. Nice. So, so Even that suit, is, like, is for a pair well, of lost right, pants. It's already big numbers, right? So in yeah. the suit, he claimed that signs in the store that said stuff like satisfaction guaranteed, same day service, all worked on on premises, like stuff you see all the time in these <laughs> kind of businesses. Awesome. He says they violated consumer protection statutes and were fraudulent because he said those were claims that were untrue. Um, that all, you know, we're already starting out from a place that I think already starts pretty frivolous, but it just gets worse and worse as it goes on. Your hangers said, we love our customers. And I felt <laughs> not one ounce of love throughout this process. I was lied to. <laughs> Sorry, keep going. I still, so, I, I still am without pants. Uh, yes. So Pearson increased his damages demand. Um and by the time the underlying case got to trial, he was seeking $3 million for emotional distress, $500,000 in attorney's fees, and here's the one I like the best of this craziness, at least $90,000 for a rental car, which he says he needed to travel to another dry cleaning service. The homie mm -hmm. was, renting a, was renting a Maybach to uh, get us to and from there. I mean... If his neighborhood must be very different from mine, there's a dry cleaner every other block around here. Yeah, I mean, right. it, it's just a wild thing. So uh, he then, as if this went on, he um, the defendants alleged that he was dragging out all sorts of things like discovery, no or whatever. Shocking, <laughs> I know. He doubled, tripled, and then even multiplied some of the damages sevenfold based on a variety of legal theories he'd come up with. And that's how he ultimately landed at a total of $67 million in compensatory and punitive damages. This is all made even the more galling and ridiculous because Pearson rejected multiple offers by the owners to end the dispute for up to $12,000. 
Wow. So even $12,000, it was lost pants, you guys. They were going to pay $12,000 for a pair At of lost pants? At some point, they must have just wanted this all to be over. So yeah, I mean, he re- and, and it was very clear from this opinion from the ethics board that he rejected multiple offers. I mean, would, litigation is negotiation. We all know I, that. That's that's that, that that's how this stuff goes. I would like you, to stress. You come in at sixty-seven million. I come in at twelve grand. We talk <laughs> a little bit. Something we mentioned early on, which is this wasn't a pro se litigant. No, this wasn't. Uh, yes, you know, thank you. I was going to get back. to This that. wasn't an attorney. You know, with a you know, this was a. This was an administrative law judge. The someone, judge. someone yeah. at one point believed that this man, uh, I guess, wasn't the kind of person who was going to file a $67 million lawsuit over a pair of pants. And yet he was. <laughs> and uh, the court ended up pretty fed up with this guy, um, not just for the underlying thing we're talking about, but they actually said in this opinion that he was never remorseful never admitted he did anything wrong. Instead, during the course of his legal ethics case, he threw misconduct accusations at the disciplinary council, at a hearing committee, and even at the appeals court. So he doubled down, just like he did in the lawsuit, he doubled down every step of the way in his ethics proceedings as well. Um, Here's what the court said. They called it a textbook example of unnecessary legal entanglement that burdens the judiciary. They said... That the whole thing was frivolous, should have just been settled in small claims court, and then had this quote. No reasonable attorney could have concluded that Pearson's liability and damages claims had even a faint hope of success on the legal merits. I want to know how this dry cleaner is doing now. Like, are they still going? Are they, you know... <laughs> I, I don't know if they're still in business, but I there was one line in our story, our Law 360 story, saying that they had, as you would imagine, in a 15-ish year saga here to get to the end of this, um, a lot of legal fees. They had uh, crowdfunded for those. So at least they got uh-huh. that covered. Um, and you can imagine, I, I didn't look this up, but you can imagine it was probably pretty easy to get people to pitch in when you heard that an administrative law judge was suing them for $67 million. Uh, you know, I mean, we're, we're three months into quarantine. I haven't even put on real pants in like, in, in like three months. I'm going to yeah. go check and make sure they're all there. So I don't ha- find myself in this kind of situation, I think. Yeah, that's important to suss out. So we should end the show here. Everybody check your closet. Make sure you don't yeah. need to file a giant lawsuit. That'll wrap up today's show. Thanks for being with me, Bill. See you again next week, guys. And Alex. Thanks. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, and our graphic designer, Chris Yates. Contributing reporters this week include Matthew Santoni, Rachel O'Brien, Dorothy Atkins, and Mike LaSusa. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and our very own Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, leave us a written review on Apple Podcasts so other people can find us. And if you want to know more about anything we've talked about today, just check out our website. It's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and see you again next week.